The Ten Commandments are still held by many to be a wise and moral code that we should respect and honor. But what is their significance today, and what can they teach us about the heart of God? Find out today on the Central Baptist Podcast. So we stand at the beginning of a new year. It's kind of like untouched sand on a beach. No footprints from previous visitors. Full of the unknown. We have no idea what lies ahead of us. So our temptation is to think that whatever happens this year is entirely out of control. I'd like to share this morning as we work through this message and come in a few minutes to communion that we actually can control a great deal of our future. This morning, I'll teach you why. So we return this morning to the Decalogue. Remember those 10 words from God? I really believe that they're there to establish fence posts for our lives to keep us safe in a world that has slipped into moral chaos. This is number seven. And today's word, it's a word really for us in our culture. It says simply, you shall not commit adultery. I will, whenever I speak on parts of the scripture that focus on marriage, I have, I have some honest hesitations. Let me give you them this morning. Some of you are now walking alone because of the death of a partner. And I want to be sensitive to you. Some of you may have known God's grace in a second marriage. I'm acutely aware that some of you may have experienced the pain of divorce. You entered into marriage with the highest of hopes and dreams, for better, for worse. And it turned out for worse. I'm so sorry for that. Some of you this morning may be in a marriage that is struggling in some way. And I want to be caring of you. Perhaps as we close in a little while, you will have the opportunity to come and pray with someone who just can take your hand and join you in prayer. Some of you are single and you may feel that this does not relate to you and you can leave early for Starbucks or somewhere. I don't know. Can I say to you, please listen anyway. It may help you in a day still to come as you seek a life partner. My last fear is personal. I do not want you to assume that because I talk in marriage that I have it all together. I do not. I bring to you this morning the truth from God's word. And I'm still in process. So to all of us this morning who are married, this is both an invitation and a challenge you will hear to do better. And as usual, it leaves so, so much behind. So let me take you back in history into the Old Testament. You remember that when the Israelites entered Canaan, they were commanded to cut down what's called the Asherah. They were sacred objects, often crudely sexual in style. But behind this command to cut them down was the expectation and the demand that this covenant nation was to have a different ethic regarding sexuality and marriage. 
And more than ever, I am convinced that the Ten Commandments, we find the practical word from God about how we are to live in our foreign culture. In some ways, just as morally confusing, just as sexually tempting as Canaan was to be for the Israelites. So our society has its own Asherah, sexual symbols that have to be destroyed if we would walk into the land being the people of God. And our starting point this morning must be to understand that all of us, all of the time, look at all of life through what is called a worldview. The way we see things. As Christians, we might like to think and say that our worldview is made up perfectly by God's word and by prayer and by the nurture of a Christian mind. But can I say to us honestly, we are often far from that reality. Our worldview is often compromised by what we see on television, what we read in the newspapers, the data that bombards our minds and assaults us every day. Television, and I think especially sitcoms, have done a great deal to normalize a lifestyle that's contrary to the scriptures. Just some statistics. In our society today, about 50% of Canadian marriages end in divorce. The three main issues are number one, money, money, then adultery, and thirdly, domestic violence. Fewer than half the present generation of young people will reach 18 with both parents living together. In the spring of 2005, the Canadian government passed Bill C-38, which allows same-sex marriages. And for those who do not understand the difference between legality and morality, that means that what is now legal is often simply understood to be moral. We're confused there. But what happens is that these negative statistics can easily create a lens that puts marriage and family out of focus from the biblical norm. We end up living closer to the cultural norm than to a biblical standard. That is the seduction of our hearts and the breakdown of the Christian mind. The reality is that the more persistently and steadily we look at things that are out of focus, the more we assume that they may be normal. And so we end up with this distorted view of reality. And so it is against these social distortions we might call the modern day Asherah, the sexual totem poles of our day, that God calls his people to live as a stand, as a holy nation, and as a royal priesthood. It's simply another way of putting the well-known challenge from Romans chapter 12, which says to us, do not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. And how is that? By the renewing of our minds. So my approach this morning will be to look at adultery as an abnormality when we have a picture of what a true biblical marriage is. The word that we need to rediscover today, a word that is to be revived today in our biblical vocabulary and in our Christian thinking, is the word covenant. It is a word that we need to start to use again, to speak again, to believe in again, and to weave into our lives again. 
It needs to be a, a key word for us as we forge a biblical worldview. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament to describe the heart of God is this word has said. It means faithfulness, loyalty, loving kindness, mercy, steadfastness, unfailing love. All of these ideas wrapped it together. Hesed describes the nature of God's covenant love for us. And it's a key word in our worldview. It's to be at the very center of the lens through which we will view all of life. And this morning, our understanding of marriage and sexuality. So this morning, we're going to explore this word covenant as it relates to marriage and safeguards us from adultery. And we'll begin by saying that covenant fidelity, covenant faithfulness, gives us the freedom of commitment. We'll start in the garden, where I think everything really begins. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Let me just pause. Up till now, everything in creation had been declared good. So for the first time, something is not good. That is the solitude and the loneliness of the man. Someone is needed who will compliment him, who will be like him, who will be his helper. And by the way, helper is not a demeaning word at all. The same word is used in the book of Psalms to describe God. He's our helper. Back to the reading. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. In other words, there's nobody like him in what has come before him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. This is someone I recognize. She shall be called woman, Nisha, for she's taken out of man. For this reason... The man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. and They will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Whenever I ask often, but not only young people, some are older in these days, who are living together, why did you choose to do that? The answer is often that they were made of making a commitment. So they just say, we're going to live together for a while and see if it works. Can I say to you that if there is freedom from commitment, we also need to understand that there is freedom in commitment. Of course, if you're married this morning, we understand that there are freedoms that we surrender when we enter into the lifelong covenant with someone else. There are things that we give up. But when we walk through that narrow door into commitment, we enter into a deepened world of a different kind of freedom. There's no freedom in commitment. That simply means that some of the questions and alternatives we used to think about have been answered for us. We no longer have to think about them. Some of the options that we used to consider are now closed. The commitment sets us free. 
There's an old version of the Anglican wedding service vow that says, I bind myself to you for life. I have chosen you. And from now on, my aim will be not to search for someone who will please me, but rather to please the one whom I have chosen. That's covenant loyalty. And we learn that from God, who has a single-minded love, a determined passion toward us, in which he says, I am committed to you. And under the canopy of that promise-keeping God, we can say to another person, I am committed to you. You understand when we say, I promise, we actually control much of the unknown future. And it is not an unknown chaos after all. Covenant loyalty gives us the freedom to grow. I've heard time and time from people, I don't want to be stifled by marriage. I got news for you. Neither do I. And neither does Harriet. I don't think anyone does. But covenant marriage is not a marriage that stifles us. Rather, it is a marriage that encourages us to grow as people in our creativity, in our individuality. It is where we mutually assist each other to become the kind of person that God fully intends us to be. I've told you I've been a pastor now for, in this year, 55 years. Then a lot of wedding services. And in marriage services, I'm sure you've been at them, couples often want to light a unity candle. You know what that means. They take two single candles and they use them to bring them together and light a unity candle. I was in one marriage service where actually as they did that, they set a bridesmaid's hair on fire. That was exciting. <laughs> but you understand the symbolism in that unity candle. So I remember one wedding service where we'd worked all this unity candle thing. We'd worked it all out, what they were going to do. And then when it came to the actual ceremony, they took the two candles and they used them to come together and light a unity candle. And then in a way that was not rehearsed, they blew the two candles out representing their own lives. <laughs> I wanted to stand up and scream and say, don't do that. Because when you get married, you are not being extinguished. A healthy marriage does not suffocate and smother our individuality. Rather, it gives us the place to grow, to change. We're creating a new person in marriage. We're creating what I call us. There's you, and there's me, and there's us. Paul Stevens, who is well-known in the Vancouver area in Regent College, and one of his books, which is called Married for Good, talks about six kinds of loyalty. Here they are, just the headings. Each one is a chapter behind it. First of all, he says, there's attitudinal loyalty. It means we value and we cherish our spouses, thinking the best of them and for them. When we cherish people, you see, it's not hard to do thoughtful things for them. It really isn't. And then Paul talks about verbal loyalty. It means the way we talk to them and the way we talk about them. Spiritual loyalty. 
We are brothers and sisters together in the grace of God. We are people mutually gifted. And so we ask, how can we encourage the gifts in our spouse? How can we help to make them grow? There's decisional loyalty. It means we'll make decisions together and we will stand together in what we've decided. You know, nothing divides a couple faster than when one says to the other, look what you have done. But in decisions, we got to go together. There's heart loyalty. There's an old wedding vow that says, I pledge thee my troth. If you don't know that word troth, it's an old, old word. It means more than truth. It means truthfulness. It means when we bring our heart to something, heart loyalty. And last but not least is physical loyalty. We understand that there is one thing, one thing that makes our marriage relationship different and unique from any other kind of relationship we have. It's the dimension of sexual intimacy. And so the words do not commit adultery was a word to protect and guard marriage in a sexually promiscuous culture then and now. Obviously, at the very basic level, it means physical adultery because that's the one thing that will break the exclusive nature of our marriage. But Jesus, Jesus who speaks into almost all of the commandments, and in his usual style, Jesus never lets us away with what it says on the surface. Jesus gets to the heart of things. And so he says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in their heart. You see, the Pharisees were experts at legalism. They could define adultery. They knew exactly what it was. It was sexual intercourse. It was ending up in bed with someone who is not your spouse. And they could say they never crossed that line. But Jesus knows, as we all do, there's a lot can happen before we cross that kind of line. Because adultery starts in the mind. So here's my definition for you this morning. Adultery is anything which we nurture in our heart, which interferes with our growing intimacy with our spouse. It is anything we nurture inside us, which interferes with the growing intimacy with our spouse. And so pornography is adultery because it visualizes another sexual partner and invites them and brings them into the relationship. It stimulates what First John calls the lust of the eyes. Some years ago, many years ago now, I had another lover in my life. I had a mistress who almost ended our marriage. I was like many men who were never thinking of ending up in bed with someone else. But I had a mistress, another lover who seduced me. 
My mistress was my work. The church I was pastoring at that time was growing. I was working long, long hours. I would almost every night. But I had left Harriet behind. And one day Harriet confronted me with this. And I had to dress it head on and change. Or I will tell you honestly, we would not be married today. And it would have been my fault. It would have been my fault. I shared that some years ago at a pastors and wives conference in Banff. And it got very, very quiet. Very quiet. I had to make some radical changes in my life, my pastoral work, and my marriage. Remember my definition. Adultery is anything which we nurture in our heart, which interferes with the growing intimacy with our spouse. Healthy marriages are not free from stress and challenges, but rather they're forged by hammer and by heat as two people commit day after day to covenant loyalty. And two people give each other the freedom to grow and change. Covenant loyalty allows us and encourages us to change and to grow together. Covenant intimacy gives us the freedom to love. Some years ago, I read in a book by Harry Blamers. He made a comment and he saw a parallel between in our culture between credit cards and premarital sex. That puzzled me. I didn't quite know what he meant. And then the connection he went on to explain is simply this. We are unable to wait. We want to buy it now. We want to have it now. So one aspect of the shallowness in our society is this desire for instant gratification. So we want it now. You cannot turn a relationship back once you've been to bed with someone. There is no such thing as casual sex. Reading through the scriptures over a lot of years, I, I pick up three different kinds of stories or incidents about sex come from the scriptures. Number one is what we'll call procreational sex. Remember the story back in by the middle of the book of Genesis when Sarah seems unable to conceive a baby with Abraham. And so she comes up with a culturally acceptable alternative. She says to Abraham that he should go and sleep with Hagar, who's her maid. The New American Standard Bible translates that part of Genesis 16. She should go, he should go into her. It's procreational sex. All we need is a baby. And that baby who is produced, what was his name? Ishmael, huge problem. That's another story. I think today maybe medical technology has overtaken here with artificial insemination. I'm not disputing, I'm just, I think you need to put those together. The second kind is recreational sex. In Genesis 39, Joseph is in Potiphar's house. It's a warm day. Egyptian summer afternoon. Everyone is out except Potiphar's wife, 
And so she says to this handsome young man, Joseph, come here. Come lie with me. That's recreational sex. Sex without commitment. Joseph ran from her. He ran. Do you know that out of that story, Joseph is falsely accused of rape? And that leads to 13 years in prison. You add them up, 13 years in prison. The third phrase that's used in the Bible is a simple word. It's simply to know. A simple, profound word to describe sexual intimacy in our marriage. To know. It is the truth of being one flesh with someone is a deep and intense way to describe this covenant intimacy. It means being with someone. As Genesis says, being naked and not be ashamed. I think in the and Genesis 2, that has very, very little to do with taking off our clothes. Rather, it's being with someone with whom we can share our dreams. We can share our hopes. We can share our fears. And in the intimacy of each other's arms, we can laugh. And we can cry. To be naked is to be vulnerable with another person. It's to know that we are safe. And what we really desire in marriages today is intimacy, which will often involve recreational sex and often procreational sex. But we desire intimacy. Young adults looking for your life partner, you're looking for intimacy. So the only safe sex today is to retain our virginity before marriage. And perhaps one day we will bring ourselves as an intimate gift to someone else in marriage. The only safe sex is to be faithful within marriage, to guard other relationships that lie outside the covenant fence of marriage. In the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, we find a whole book written to celebrate this kind of covenant sexuality. Song of Songs is a delicate portrayal of a wedding night. In the intimacy of covenant marriage, we do not just meet as body to body. We meet as soul to soul, spirit to spirit. So our culture tells us we need to find ourselves. We know some people have left their marriages to go and find themselves. God calls us to be countercultural, which means we lose ourselves. Remember, husbands, that Ephesians says we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And he loved his church, his bride, sacrificially. So covenant sexuality invites us to experience what it means to serve one another in this most intimate of ways and to lose ourselves for the sake of another person. So we live in changing moral times. You know that, I know that. The flickering candle of biblical morality almost seems to be getting snuffed out. But this moral eclipse can also be the stage for a biblical witness. We'll never have perfect marriages. We will never have perfect families. The scripture does not offer us that kind of utopia. 
But if we will do the hard work of building covenant marriages that will have credibility and authenticity in these darkening times as the moral sun fades, perhaps people will be drawn to look for answers. Osganess, who's a British philosopher and theologian, <clears throat> talking about the end of the last century, says our society has discovered that the free love of the 60s was not free. He says people were more afraid of herpes than hell. The materialism of the 70s left us bankrupt. The humanism of the 80s was a striptease. It offers us everything but gives us nothing. And the spirituality of the 90s was the road to nowhere. So Guinness says we are lost and we have been seduced. But somewhere, somewhere in this moral wasteland, in this spiritual wilderness, there must be a people who are not sexually disoriented, who are not morally confused. They're not relationally perplexed. They are the people who have heard the voice of God from the fire on the mountain and who will echo with all of Israel, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. So in a few moments, we come to communion. And it's also built on this word, covenant. This truth, covenant. We come this morning to a covenant table. That's communion. So we will pause for a moment. And I'm going to ask you, um, have you picked up on your way in or do you need this little cup of bread and wine? If you, I'm going to ask the ushers um, if they'll come. And if someone needs that, would you just please... And for a moment, just raise your hand. Keep it raised up for a moment over there, over here. Someone else. Someone here. Are we okay? I think you know by now that if you carefully take the top off, there's a piece of bread, and <coughs> for a few minutes later, the Wine is in the rest of the cup. All right? Thank you. So for the first time this year, we come to this covenant table. In this bread and wine, we meet a covenant-making, promise-keeping God. So can I say to you this morning, we do not need to be afraid of all of the unknowns that lie ahead of us this year. Because in this bread and wine, our God has said, I will be with you. I am with you. I will go ahead of you. In this bread and wine, he says, nothing can separate me. Nothing can separate you from my love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as you take small piece of bread and I break this before you we thank God for his faithful presence pray with me please Father we break this bread as it was broken in an upper room and we thank you that with all that lies ahead of us that's unknown you promise in your covenant and your promises to be faithful to us and so we take this bread with things. We take and we eat. Amen.
in the quiet gathering of that upper room, Jesus took a cup. He lifted it up before them and he said, this cup is the new covenant. There's that word again. The new covenant for us. So as you've accepted Jesus into your heart and life, God has made a covenant with you. I will be with you no matter what happens. I've thought for many years that one of the great gifts of God to us is that he does not let us see or know the future. I don't think we could handle it. I don't think we would know how to handle the pain that we could not change or expect the joys that are still to come for us. Instead, he gives us a promise. Whenever what happens, happens. I will be with you. That's his promise. So may you take this cup this morning, drink it as the new covenant of his promise to you. Father, we thank you for these symbols. As we stand at the beginning of a new year, they promise us that you will be with us, our families over all that happens. We do not know what that is, but we have your promise of your presence. For that we say, Amen. Thank you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and invite you to stand. We enter 2023 under the banner of a covenant-making promise-keeping God. It means that this new year is not out of his control. He knows all that will happen. His faithfulness removes our fear and gives us confidence. If you've lost a life partner through this last year, may you treasure the memory of that covenant in your life. And so we're going to sing a covenant hymn, an old hymn, about his faithfulness and how great it is. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.